Hi everyone, I'm Lottie Bowser and you're listening to Lemonade, the podcast that amplifies extraordinary stories of adversity, courage and resilience so that you too can be reminded of your power. Every fortnight, a guest reveals the defining moments that have shaped their lives and the insights and tools they have learned that have helped them to thrive in the wake of their challenges. Season one is packed with incredible people, from activists to comedians, athletes and authors. Don't forget to hit the follow button to be the first to know about every new episode and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Good morning, Michael. Good afternoon from Lisbon and welcome to the Lemonade podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Nice to be talking with you again. I know. So we, we connected when I was invited to come and speak on your podcast, Shout Out A Good Cry. It's fucking brilliant and really funny. Thank you. <laughs> It's so brilliant. And you and I spoke all things loss and grief. And I wanted to have a chat to you today. So we're kind of swapping roles a little bit. Um, You know loss and grief very intimately. We'll get into the grief stuff shortly, but I was hoping to rewind. I think it's around 14 years ago now, correct me if I'm wrong, to your wife's first pregnancy. Sure. Um, so let's see. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm going too far back when I say I always wanted to have kids. Like my, when I was a kid, I knew I wanted to have kids. And then when we actually decided like, okay, now we're going to try to have kids, I experienced a shift that I think is common in a lot of men for sure. But I'm, I would imagine women as well, where it's like, oh crap, now we're really so we're really, really going to do it. Now we're committing to, you know, making lives. And we got pregnant, luckily, pretty quickly. And, you know, I've, I was pretty stressed out about it, just like in the idea of, you know, having to provide for another human being and being a good role model and, you know, all those other things. And that stress, I think, was more than doubled when we went to one of the appointments with the OB, who um, with the obstetrician, who said you're having twins. And I was like, "Oh, amazing!" <laughs> um, and immediately we got shifted to a different doctor because this doctor didn't feel comfortable, I guess, dealing with twins, and then. Going to the oh God, I hope that's right. The doctor didn't feel comfortable dealing with twins. Does that make sense, or is that my, have I invented something ridiculous? Anyway, that's what I remember being true. Feel free to fact check whether that's possible. Anyway, we moved to a different doctor, and that doctor diagnosed our twins with something called twin to twin transfusion syndrome. Which now that I'm saying it, that might have been when we switched right in there when the diagnosis was made. But regardless. Twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome is a very rare affliction by which um, one of your kids gets too much of the nutrients from the mother and one of your kids gets too little. And the imbalance is very like, without intervention, almost 100% fatal for both twins. So we went to a hospital in Philadelphia, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and they performed this 
procedure that I think was relatively new at the time called laser ablation, where basically they make the tiniest little incision in my wife. They put a laser in through that incision and they shoot lasers at her placenta that effectively like reallocate the nutrients and freakishly it worked. Like, you know, after the surgery, the doctors were like, this is a complete success. Very shortly, we had, we had to stay in Philly for some monitoring afterwards. Very shortly thereafter, they were like, this was, this went well. And the pregnancy sort of continued at that point optimistically. Like we, you know, we're not moving with a shadow of, of dread or whatever. And the kids were born relatively without incident via C-section. Uh, I'm skipping over a tremendous amount of uh, things that my wife had to do and be mindful of to keep those babies healthy. But just know that there's a large blank in there of like having to, you know, take in a certain number of calories, regardless of how comfortable she was, you know, having more food or like, you know, protein shakes or whatever. But anyway, both kids were born um, early, but relatively without incident. They had to stay in neonatal, um, neonatal intensive care because they were born so early. Maybe this is getting ahead of the part of the story you want me to get to, but just sort of one night on his 34th day of life, one of our twins got incredibly rapidly and fatally sick. We got a call in the morning and my wife's mother was staying with us at the time. And the doctor said, you have to come to the hospital right now. Fisher, who was the younger of the twins, um, is incredibly sick. And they suspected it was something called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is, just to keep it short, real, real bad. And when my wife said that to her mother, who had previously been a nurse, her mother looked at her and said, oh, no, that's the bad thing which was a very disquieting moment for all of us. So we drive to the hospital already kind of in tears and panicking. We get there. Um, they have to do sort of an emergency exploratory surgery to figure out what's going on with him. And it turns out it's not necrotizing enterocolitis or neck as they call it. But when we hear that initially, we're like, oh, thank God. But then you can see the doctors like, that's actually, we're not out of the woods it's something else called the volvulus, which means that his intestines have detached um, from like what was supposed to keep them stable in his abdomen. They've twisted around, torn, and as a result of the tear, like things that should be moving through his digestive system and, you know, that he should eventually be crapping out are now just free inside of his abdomen. Mm. And over the period of, you know, just basically a few hours, he reached a state where the doctors were like, he is almost definitely going to die now. We can take heroic measures to try and keep him alive. But, you know, this isn't a term that they use, but like that life will not be meaningful as a life in the way that, you know, you think of a child being alive. And if we were to heroically keep him alive, it would, you know, it's going to take all these resources to do something that it feels like is not going to provide this child with any comfort at all. And in fact, could make what remains of his life much more uncomfortable. So I think ultimately, the decision was made to let him die. He was going to die, you know, anyway, but to let him die sort of in its own time. Um, and that's what happened. Mm. 
that like there's a lot of like subtle things and maybe you went through this as well where like you know the optimism of the hospital also changes where you can feel people you know not in any way trying to rush you or anything like that but just like the swagger that the doctor walks into the room with changes each time and like the last time when he's walking in you're like oh i know that this guy is the way this guy's moving this is over Mm-hmm. Or like I remember going into there's like a a grief counseling moment that some of the you know that our doctor was there for we had a few, several doctors during this time who were interchangeable sort of based on you know the scheduling of the hospital but whatever doctors were there and then there was another doctor who I'd never met before or maybe she was a counselor of some kind who just kept saying you know the hospital really wants what's best for your daughter so and so uh, they kept saying your daughter your daughter and I remember being like um, actually it's my fucking son. Yeah. They probably have babies die there. It's a great hospital. We we love the care that we got. They probably have babies die there all the time. And this person's just like, okay, I have to do another one of these today and mixed up my kid with somebody else's kid. But I just remember like little indignities like that, that really like, I'm someone who very much bottles up his anger until it comes out in a bad way. And I remember it slipping out in that moment. Oh my God. I can completely imagine. Yeah. I've heard you tell your story before and it's just as shocking to hear it again. That is such inconceivable trauma, Michael. And to have to contend with that alongside being catapulted into the uncharted world of parenting for the first time must have just been crazy. I mean, how did you guys cope with that news and and having to to show up as first time parents um i don't even know if like cope is the right word i think it's more like just weren't killed by it you know what i mean it's like mm. it's it's almost no credit to us at all it's just that for whatever reason we were still alive after it happened and so it's like okay well now we just go on living does that make sense? Like, what I'm trying to say is I don't think we took any measure during that time that I would necessarily recommend to any other person. We didn't know where to turn or like how to channel the 50 million new emotions that we were having. The way our lives unfolded is it's like we still have to raise Truman and like do what he needs. We still have to come to the hospital every day and bottle feed him. And then we, have, we still have to come to the hospital and feed him. We still have to come to the hospital and sing to him. We have to come to the hospital and just be parents to him in whatever way that can be done until he comes home a few months later. And then we have to raise him. So having a twin who lived was like an incredible gift to us because it gave us a sense of purpose moving forward. And it was a kind of thing that no matter how fucked up we were feeling on any given day, it's emotion that is required of you and being set in motion, I think, was extremely helpful to us. Because otherwise, if we had left the hospital with no one, I don't know what would have happened to us, to, to either my wife or to me, because I don't know how, I don't know what, it, what the thing would have been that would have been like, okay, today is why you're getting out of bed. But because we had Truman, it's like, okay, well, this is something that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And it's something we, we, that we want to do. The coping mechanism, if you will, was that we were forced into action 
many, many times a day, every single day. If I didn't have that, I guess I would tell people like, I don't know, jog, like find some way to not stay completely still in the sadness because the sadness is immense. It's unimaginably huge. It really is. You make a couple of really interesting points there. And I think you're right. It's less about coping. It's just that, you know, really you were left with no other choice. You know, you had to keep functioning and putting one foot in front of the other. You had another, you know, newborn baby that was reliant upon you for for his survival. So you kind of just had to show up even on the days where you felt like you couldn't or didn't want to, right? Yeah. I mean, did you, did you feel like, what did it take for you to like start moving again after, after Ben died? It's one of those really annoying cliches that I think if anybody else would have said to me at the start would have really pissed me off. But, you know, having, having sort of been in this, in this place of of suffering a, a profound loss, it was time actually. It really was time. I found that, you know, as the months passed, the all-consuming, unrelenting grief began to loosen its grip a little bit. And I was able to kind of sit up a little bit taller and and take notice more and re-engage with my life again. I think at the very start for me, even though I didn't want to be here anymore, it was more a case of like, well, you know, I have to find a way to keep surviving for, for the other people that love me, you know, that, that want me to be here. I've got to live for them. And then that started to shift. As I said, as time passed, I wanted to live. And I think death has been a very profound teacher for me in that sense. And I wonder if you could shed some light on how it's impacted you. But I felt this sense of urgency, this like desire to just grab every day by its balls, you know, and try to live as best a day as I possibly could, you know, within the realms of what felt feasible. Because Ben couldn't anymore. You know, it really taught me just how precious and how fleeting life is. And how at any given moment, things can change, you know? Yeah, I I do know. And I think what you're saying about it being cliche is, (laughs) it's so true. And you would love to be, to come out of an experience like this and be like, you know what, actually something new happened to me that's never happened to anyone else. But it turns out the reason that the cliche of time heals all wounds exists is that it's kind of true. I mean, obviously not everything and not in the time that you want it to happen, but eventually your perspective is allowed to shift or maybe not even shift, but like you acquire more perspectives. Yeah, I agree with that. I want to delve into that a little bit more, but I'm curious to know, Michael, so 10 years after Fisher's death. I think it was around the 10 year mark. I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day. You posted a tweet about your grief. You decided that you wanted to talk about it openly. And I want to know what the, what was the turning point for you? Why after that time did you decide you wanted to, to talk about it? Well, um, let's see. So 
every year on the anniversary of Fisher's death, I would write a little something someplace. That's sort of like whatever media I was using at the time, whether it was like Tumblr or at some point it was Blogspot or whatever. And there was really just like a way for me to mark that it had happened and to like not let that day pass with no acknowledgement, even if it was only me. Like I didn't have, you know, millions of followers or anything. And as my son, who was alive, turned 10, I just started to feel like it was weird that I never talked about my other son. I mean, I, I, you know, I did occasionally and it wasn't like people would ask me about Fisher and I would be like, how dare you? It wasn't, you know, that kind of situation. It was just more that it wasn't something that was part of the person that I presented to the world. And as someone who is, you know, pretty extroverted and likes talking to people, for whatever reason at that time, it felt like this is something that I do want to talk about and I do want people to know. And it feels wrong to not mention it. I was doing stand-up comedy a bunch and I had a joke that always played really well, which was, I would say, you know, my wife and I only have one argument, but we have it all the time. And it's that I never want to have kids. I tell her every day. Uh, I tell her 10 times a day. I'll like write it on little pieces of paper and leave it around the house. And she'll get really mad at me because we have two kids. And so when I reveal that I have, that I'm like saying I don't want to have kids after I've already had children, the audience usually laughs really hard. And at first, it's like this joke really works and I would do it all the time. But then like the more you tell it, the more you're like, well, so at that point, we'd had a daughter as well, Willa. So the the two kids I was referencing were my living son and my daughter. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, you're like, well, shit, that's not really right. That's not right. I don't have two kids. I have three kids. I'm going all over the place, you know, all over New York City. I'm on TV telling this joke. And it's like, damn, you know, I don't. I don't feel totally good about the way that I've presented this to the world. And so I want to just like come clean with this and honor my third child. I mean, you know, chronologically my second child, but my, my third, my other child. That's why I tweeted sort of this long thread about grief. Uh, I, I think it was on the 10th anniversary of his death. I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, our loved ones that we lose, they don't just cease to exist, right, in our minds and our hearts. They're not left in the, in the year in which they died. They're very much a part of us still, right? Like the relationship didn't end. Your love for them didn't end. Their life came to an end. I think there's a misconception around that. You know, people who perhaps haven't experienced a bereavement think that, you know, in order for us to be kind of healthy and well-adjusted in our grief, that we have to move on and kind of let go. You know, there's that whole narrative at funerals, et cetera, around saying goodbye. You know, we're here to say goodbye. The celebrant kept on fucking saying that at Ben's funeral. And it made me so (laughs) angry. I was so incensed because it went against all my intuition to, to do that, to just kind of leave him behind in November, 2020. Was the celebrant someone that you, was it someone that you knew? Or was it just like the person who was at this place? 
wasn't someone that we knew. We we found him. He was um he was a humanist celebrant. He was quite spiritual, but not religious. So we you know we felt that it would it would have resonated with Ben and it resonated with us. But it was interesting that that was the kind of the the rhetoric, you know. And you hear it so much. And there's this amazing bereavement concept which you may have come across called continuing bonds. There were some American authors that that introduced this and they challenged bereavement models that encouraged detachment from the deceased loved ones and this idea of letting go in order to move forward and instead invited grievers to carry their loved one with them as time passed. And I think that's that's so beautiful and it's been shown as well to really help people cope with the loss. I love that idea. I know, right? Me too. At Fisher's funeral which was held at a funeral home very near the hospital, there was just kind of like, we were totally in shock, right? So like through all this time, and we, you know, we didn't exactly pick the funeral home so much as they were like, well, there's, we know there's a funeral home over here. And we're like, great, that one. And then it's like, okay, there's a, there's a guy, you know, a priest who normally does these. We're like, great, then him. And it's the same sort of, disassociation like when he's talking and saying whatever stuff he's saying about you know the life that exists beyond this one and saying goodbye that i'm just like i literally have no idea what this guy is saying and i I couldn't feel less related to what this person is saying about my son god bless him i'm sure he's trying he's trying his absolute best but i do remember that feeling of like the words he said with the best intentions giving me absolutely no comfort at all. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I, I think that speaks to the the general illiteracy surrounding grief. It's mental to me. And y- you actually um, say something really poignant in in one of your podcast episodes, that it's only through grief that we come to understand what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, what it means to be connected to every other soul who has lived and died before us. It's kind of bonkers that it's this universal experience and yet we still don't seem to know how to, how to deal with it, you know, how to show up for people that are dealing with grief and I guess how to navigate it ourselves. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, there's so many parts of that concept, but, you know, one of them is, at least in, the States, I feel like we are very obsessed with image and part of image is sort of this um, unrelenting need to appear young and like vibrant. So physical degradation, which I'm sure has a more euphemistic, uh, (laughs) um, becoming more seasoned, maturing, shall we say, is really... (laughs) something that we like keep, a, we keep that away. You know what I mean? I'm looking for the angle in this selfie where I look the youngest. 100% of the time, that, that's my best side is whatever makes me look like I'm 20. Um, and so like we're further discouraged from acknowledging the inescapable truth of the fact that almost everyone who ever existed is dead. Mm. Think of a person, they are dead. That or they're going to be dead. Those are like the two kinds of things you can be. And That's so wild. I do think that we that we pretend that that is not happening 
And for the people who do pretend that, in whose number I count myself for a very long time, I think the idea of death and grief is really jarring because it's the confrontation of a thing that you are really trying to pretend is not going to happen. Absolutely. I agree. I always have to kind of smile through gritted teeth when people's birthdays wind around and they're like, oh no, I'm getting old. And you know, they're 32. And I'm like, guys, it's firstly, it's a privilege, actually, really, when you think about it to you know, to see in another year. And secondly, that's not old. And yeah, like (laughs) you, that is just the inevitability with the passing of time. Like you, you know, we, we get old, entropy is a thing and we die, which is bleak. But I feel as, I feel like, you know, and and this just circling back to what I was saying about death being such a, a profound teacher for me, that's what it's taught me, you know, that fuck, my time here is finite. And, you know, I might die tomorrow. I hope not. I hope I've got another 50 years in the bag. But, you know, if I don't, I want to try and make the most of today. That's an ideal lesson to take from this. Yeah, there's not many good things really um, to come from, you know, these kinds of things. But certainly there are, there are learnings, you know. So this happened some time ago, and I wanted to know how your grief has changed since then, because I think in the depths of early grief, there is this really helpless, hopeless feeling that we will be consumed by this pain forevermore. And I mean, I I certainly resign myself to like a lifetime of destitution and misery and darkness and hopelessness. What does your grief look like now compared to compared to when it first happened? Uh, I mean, it's definitely changed. The like, sort of at the beginning, just to give a sense of like how dire it was. I remember being in a room at the hospital when we knew for sure that Fisher was going to die, and my wife and I just kind of collapsing into each other and her saying, how will I ever be happy? And so like that question, I think is one that anyone who has been through grief can identify with. Like that is the distillation of the great fear that you feel. In addition to the sadness of the loss, there's also like, this will never not be like this. I will always feel this exact feeling. And for us, for some of the reasons I've spoken about, but also because of some of the reasons you've spoken about, like time, that really has changed a lot. So now, I mean, I think about Fisher every day. Um, A lot of that is to do with the fact that, you know, that's part of like the work that I'm doing with my podcast and. I have a show. I don't know when this is coming out exactly, but I have a show off. I'm about to be doing a one man show off Broadway, also on the subject of grief. So it's definitely part of the work. But I think even if I weren't doing any of that, it would still be, he would still be a part of my daily thought process because I choose that. I want that. And I think that is also something that changes, which is that 
at first the grief is utterly involuntary. I don't want to think about this sadness. I want to try, you know, as crazy as it sounds to like not think about my son. I want to think about, I don't know, like an episode of Seinfeld or something to like make, bring some lightness into my brain because it feels intolerable. Mm. Now I call those moments up. I summon the sadness because it makes me feel connected to him still. Mm-hmm. Does that sound crazy? No, <laughs> like I, not, I'm, not at all. I, now it's like I'm. I'm. I sometimes it will still come on totally um, out of out of no place. You know what I mean? I'm watching. Uh, I'm watching a basketball game, and the one of the players on the back of his jersey it says that his last name is Fisher. And then all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, I'm crying watching a friggin' college basketball game. So that still happens. Yeah. But also there are times where like, I will choose, let me, let me sit down and just like, you know, to write about him or talk about him. And in all cases now, I like the sadness. I like the bitterness of that because it makes me feel like he's not forgotten and him not being forgotten is part of what keeps him alive. Absolutely. The love is still there. Like the physical wiring of your, of your brain is different because, because of the bond that you, that you had with him. I'll butcher the science if I try to recount it in detail, but you know, we, we, we actually carry a physical part of them that the proteins in our brains are folded differently because we bonded with them. Um, but I think what you said about needing a distraction, needing a, needing respite, should I say, that's probably a better word for it from your grief in the early days is so valid. And I think with that, I mean, certainly I, I experienced it. Um, and I'm sure some of my listeners will have done too, is, is the guilt that's served with that, you know, cause, cause for me, I associated my grief with, with like my love for Ben and to feel lightness, to feel joy, to laugh felt like a disservice to him, you know, felt like an injustice, felt like it was offensive in some way. Um, but it's so important. It's so important to seek out some reprieve, you know, anything that can bring a little bit of solace. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, maybe because I'm a comedian, the um, laughing in the face of the worst thing that could possibly happen doesn't feel... it. it I don't feel the specifically with that. I don't feel guilt necessarily, but I, but it's hard not to, you kind of make a vow with yourself in the aftermath of something like this. I shouldn't say you, I did where you're like, you know what? I'm going to live the rest of my life as a tribute to this person who's not here. And I will tell you that that's all good and well (laughs) for a few days. And then, you know, I didn't become a better person in any way. I did nothing. <laughs> I, I haven't been sanctified by this loss. So I'm still like, 
you know, in my car beeping at the guy in front of me, I'm still, you know, forgetting my Metro card and jumping the turnstile, like putting the pressure of let me make sure that everything I do going forward is a reflection of the perfect person I would have wanted my son to be. Very quickly, I was like, I, I'm, I'm not going to be capable of doing that. And if I set that standard for myself, I will be in a interminable cycle of guilt. And I have to just like, you know, forgive myself. We all do, I think, for just like being, for surviving, for being human and continuing to go on. And there's also, you know, I think you've talked about this before, like, would Ben... Would my son, would they be, if they could see us, right? If they were able to observe us in some way, would they be like, oof, I hope they're sad. That's what I, if they stay sad forever, that's the true tribute to me. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think it's any good for anyone to be like, I'm, it's necessary for me to remain morose for the rest of my days. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily good for anyone, which isn't to say that I don't, continue to feel guilt periodically. You know, I forgive myself for that too. Yeah. And I think it's not as binary as one thing or the other, right? Our sadness can exist alongside our joy. And I mean, you, you would have experienced that profoundly with grieving the loss of Fisher whilst, uh, you know, celebrating, celebrating your, uh, your your son, your living son. Yes. I mean, I think that's that's very true that, you know, we would have a birthday party for Truman and it would be awesome and great. And then you put him to bed that night. And then there would just kind of be a moment where my wife and I are in the kitchen or whatever. And we're both kind of standing there silently for a second and look at each other. And you know that the thought that is inside both of your minds right now is, damn, that's Fisher's birthday too. And he's not here. Yeah. And we have to honor all of that. You know, There's, there is space for all of it. Michael, I'd like to know what you found to be, well, firstly, let's talk about what wasn't supportive. <laughs> if you, if you care to divulge some of the fuck up, some of the, some of the unhelpful things that people said, what didn't help during that time? I would say most things were nice. Like there was nothing, almost nothing anybody did that I was like, wow, this is fucked up. <laughs> I would say the things, there were things that were unhelpful. Like, for example, let me know if there's anything I can do. That is not helpful. It's not bad. It doesn't make me upset. I know that's that's someone saying something saying something nice. But the people who helped are the people who helped, not the people who asked about helping. That might just be me too. I don't want to encourage listeners of this podcast <laughs> to go barreling into their bereaved friend's home and just start cooking soup or whatever. But for us, there's so many things going on that there's literally no chance that I'm going to go and email you, hey, um, can you, you know, take care of XYZ errand for me? Yeah, you don't have the bandwidth. That's exactly right. We, we had, a, um, we had 
um, one of my childhood friends who I really like had not necessarily remained super close with through the years, but our dads had remained very close, lived in New York at the time, and he just started coming to the hospital and hanging out. And that was, it's like, why are you doing this? This is amazing. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, pushy. It wasn't like, you know, he wasn't inserting himself into anything. It was just like being available, but in an active way that didn't require any, any work uh, on our part. There was also, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was someone I remember making a joke about my son dying. And then afterwards saying like, you know, you got to laugh or else how are you going to move on? I want to be like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll kind of be in charge of when that I'll be in charge of when it's time for that. That's not going to be up to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I know that people mean well. I give a, a lot of room for them to do things that aren't exactly the, the exact thing that I want. Like people made us tons of food and that was great. People offered to, like, I remember a big thing was that we had bought a stroller for twins. You know what I mean? Like, that's what we had. So, we we can't, like, very well be pushing our one son around in this twin stroller. One, because of how psychologically fucked up that would be for us, but also for the number of people who would be like, hey, what's the deal with this stroller for two? So, I remember having friends who were like, hey, we'll take that stroller back for you. It's just like, the more active people were and they're helping, the more it actually helped. I know I've flipped over to the other side of your question, but I'm only doing that because there wasn't that much that was bad. Everyone reaching out, every single person I appreciated, every, you know, every, even though things that were like, he's in a better place, in my mind, I'm like, no, he's fucking not, but whatever. Like, that's, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. It shows you that you're trying to connect and and be helpful. I guess the only other thing that is tough, but it's sort of unavoidable, and it harkens back to what we were saying earlier, is that sometimes you will tell someone about this tragedy and they will become so much more sad than you are in that moment that it's like, oof, okay, so now this is kind of about me making you feel better about what happened to us. And that is a, that I will say is a little bit annoying, but it's like totally involuntary. You know what I mean? Like no one, they're trying to do that. It's just that like when you bring up to someone, even the idea that a child could die, it's earth shaking because it's like, that's, well, that's not how, that's not the order of the universe. And people do legitimately just start crying. I don't begrudge that people that response. It's not helpful to me, but I understand why you would have that reaction. It's really fucking sad. Yeah. It's really difficult that, I mean, it definitely gets easier, as I said, with the passing of time, but um, navigating other people's experience of your situation, you know, um, a lot of my friends are very close to my late partner, Ben, and there's this thing called the ring theory, whereby what you're supposed to do is to kind of direct your experience of the crisis that sits, you know, at the center of the circle outwards, as opposed to kind of onto the person in the middle of it. Oh, I think you mentioned this when we, when we spoke on my podcast. Yeah, possibly. I have a lot of capacity, you know, to, uh, to hold other people's 
pain. But um, there were certainly some moments where I just surpassed my my ability to to deal with any more emotion around Ben's death and yeah just sometimes found it tricky you know trying to support other people whilst carrying this impossible weight of grief myself yeah I mean as any as any human being would like it seems like there's a finite capacity well there's just only so much of any person and when so much of you is wrapped up in trying to survive some kind of a trauma that like there isn't as much of you as there might have been to take care of other people, especially if you're someone who is known by your friends and family or whoever is like, oh, well, Lottie is someone that I can go to with my problems. There might be a little time where you're like, well, actually, maybe not right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, kind of, yeah, not emotionally up to the task. Michael, if you could tell your younger self 14 years ago something, when you were in the midst of so much deep pain and grief, what would it be? This is such a good question that I obviously should have an answer to. Off the top of my head, I think it will be, this is going to be worse than you imagine, and you will survive it, and you will be okay. And I think like that managing of the expectations, because I think there is like a a tendency to tell people you can survive this, which I think is a good tendency. And I think it is true. But what I think that maybe undercuts is like, oh, you think you're sad on day one? Wait till you think about this in a month. And when you wait till you wake up in the middle of the night crying about how if you had done, you know, if you had been there at the hospital for this one other thing, he would still be alive. So you're going, just prepare yourself. However bad this is, it could get worse, but you will survive it. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's really powerful. Where can people find you? What's your social media handle? On Twitter and Instagram, I am at Cruz Kane. That's C R U Z. K-A-Y-N-E. And I will say that frequently people go to look for me, they accidentally type Kanye instead of Kane. <laughs> and that is a very different person. Hellfish. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I'm so, so happy we found time to to chat today. Um, I've no doubt so many of my listeners will find your story super inspiring and everything that you've shared about grief, really, really supportive. So thank you so much for making time and for joining me. Thanks for having me. A joy.